I want to welcome you once again. If you are visiting, especially, we are at a, a great place to come into a sermon series. It's a major transition point in the book of 1 Samuel. And um, this is the time in this book when God has turned away from his first king, rejected Saul, and is now pointing to the new king, the new anointed one who will lead his people, David. And it's tempting for us to push all of that historical detail about Israel's kings and their, their ins and outs, push it all to the background as just, as just sort of setting. Typically, when we come to the Old Testament, many of us really don't care about those details. We look upon the characters, not the setting. How can I be like or not be like the character that are shown here? We look at David. What parts of David's life should I pick up and emulate? What parts of Saul should I avoid? We look at them as moral examples. No, but if we read the Bible like this, if we constantly go to the Old Testament texts this way, we're going to miss the point. There is a bigger drama at work. God is telling an epic, not an episode. You know, uh, I don't know if you're like me, but in the last several years, I tend to be gravitating towards those binge shows. You know, they're on like everything now, Netflix and Amazon, and you pick it up, and it's got one plot that goes from season one to season ten. Now, some of those don't seem like they have one plot. I mean, Lost just is completely off the radar. But they get you hooked on this one plot so that you follow along. Well, the Bible is more like that. It's more like those binge-worthy shows than it is like that episode or that that three-minute YouTube clip that you can just jump into and you don't need any, any context at all. It isn't the fact if you jump into a scripture without any context, you're more likely to miss it, to not understand. And so there's an encouragement here. We need to see that there's a plot going on, a plot line that has started in Genesis and that goes all the way to its climax in the New Testament. And that story is key. What's the plot? Very simply, the plot is all about Jesus. It is a story about Christ from beginning to end. And so whenever we dive right into a a passage, wherever we are, we have to keep in mind that this is a story that's going somewhere. And that's been somewhere. And that story needs to fit into the greater story about how God is redeeming his people through Jesus. Now, there has been one character in this story that often seems like he is in the background. There's a character that's been there all along, but sometimes we don't pay attention to him. In fact, we won't really pay attention to him, many of us, until it gets to the book of Acts in the New Testament. And of course, that character is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit here, even in the Old Testament, 
has been at work. We see him in our passage. The Holy Spirit in verse 13 rushes upon David. The very next verse, the Holy Spirit in verse 14 departs from Saul. We need to pay attention to the activity of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit fits within the, the whole drama of Scripture. The Spirit's not you know, just coming on stage in a cameo. Oh, he's popping up here. Oh, hey, look, there he is again. As if we're trying to somehow figure out the, the doctrine of the Trinity by lacing together some Old Testament passages. No, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's there even more than than to just help the the characters in the plot fill their roles. No, he takes part in the drama itself. He comes on stage at key points. I'm convinced that we need to focus on this. We need to focus on God's whole story when we come to this passage and when we look at the Holy Spirit's activity. If we do, I think there's a rich message for us. If we don't, I think we're going to be really troubled by this story. And there's going to be lots of points in it that, that start to really bother us. And so let's come afresh. Let's bring fresh eyes to this text. But let's first ask this Holy Spirit who now is with us to guide us through it. Will you pray with me? Oh, holy God, we thank you that you're not a God that hides. You're not a God that is, is creating a mystery for us to solve. But you're a God who reveals himself. Thank you, O Lord, that you not only leave it up to our small brains and our feeble understanding to get this, but you have granted us and blessed us with the Holy Spirit. And so in that way, we ask now that you enliven our hearts and minds to understand this word so that we might be blessed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think for many of us, the thought of the Holy Spirit being active in the Old Testament is strange. To state it, maybe frankly, the Holy Spirit, in many people's experience, is either grouped into miraculous, ecstatic events, things that seem to be a little bit aside from our uh, ordinary experiences of Christianity, perhaps mysterious in how it might fit in with Christ, or for others, the Holy Spirit is individualistic and experiential. It's only there for our private times. And so when we come across these grand narratives of the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, it's hard to see where the Holy Spirit fits into that pattern. But I want to look at two different ways in which the Holy Spirit works in the Old Testament. Two different ways that he's active. First one is a very familiar way that the Spirit is active. He's active in the lives of every believer. Every believer in the Old Testament. Everyone in the Old Testament who puts their faith in Christ or puts their faith in the promise that will come has been worked on by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has always been at work. The Holy Spirit has always been necessary for faith. No one, I think Scripture makes it clear throughout, no one can believe without First, the work of the Holy Spirit, preparing our hearts, changing us, bringing us from death to life. 
So in this way, the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament is very much like the Holy Spirit's work in the New Testament. Faith has always been a gift, and a gift that comes by the Spirit. When Paul begins to talk in his his two great chapters that he's written in the New Testament about faith, Romans 4 and Galatians 3, who does he talk about? He talks about people from the Old Testament. Romans 4, he talks about King David in the Old Testament. He talks about uh, uh, Abraham. And he brings up Abraham again in, in chapter 3, all in the context of this idea that faith, this same faith, has been there from the beginning. Deuteronomy 10 describes the people of the Old Testament as having a circumcised heart. Really? People in the Old Testament had a circumcised heart? Yes. That's what it says in that passage. In the New Testament, we learn that that's the activity of the Holy Spirit. He's there to circumcise our hearts, not just outwardly affecting us, but inside, transforming us. And just to be clear, all this faith I've been talking about is not simply the ability to believe, but it's faith in Christ. It's Christ-centered faith. Now, they may not have known the particular details. They didn't know Jesus' name. They didn't know the day that it would happen or the method that God would use to redeem. But from Genesis chapter 3 and at several parts throughout the Old Testament, God continues to make this promise. And they believed. If I tell my kids, as I often do, that we're going to do something special this afternoon. We're going to go out for something special. They get excited. I haven't yet used that to take them to the dentist or to punish them in some way. I'm not above that, but I don't do that. But they get excited about that. Well, they don't know it's going to be ice cream. I just promised I'm going to take them out for ice cream later. They don't know that it's ice cream that I'm taking them, but when it happens, they experience the same joy. It may be the completion of that joy, but they were excited all day long. Maybe not the best analogy, but that's sort of what it is. It's this vague but distinct promise that God is going to redeem. They didn't know how he was going to redeem, but he knew it was going to redeem. And so when Christ comes, it was the, ah, yes. This is it. This is the culmination and fulfillment. And the the people who didn't get it didn't understand the nature of the promise that God was making. And so we see that it was always that spirit at work. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says when God led the people out of Egypt, out through the desert, and fed them, he said they fed them with spiritual food. Holy Spirit food met them with a rock and brought water from the rock. Holy Spirit rock. And then he says, that rock was Christ. The Spirit at work in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Pointing to Christ. You see, in many ways, the Holy Spirit's role has never changed. John 16, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he says the Spirit has one job. The Spirit's job is not to point to himself. 
The Spirit's job has always been to point to Jesus. To direct God's people to Christ. And so, it was in the Old Testament, that same role, the Spirit pointing the people of God then to Christ. But there's a second way that the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. The second way that He's active is moving the story of Jesus to its climax. The Spirit, you see, just doesn't just apply the message of the Gospel. He is a vital player in the drama. God's salvation isn't just a concept that can be written down on a small piece of paper. It's not even just one event. However important and magnificent the event of the cross is, salvation isn't just defined by this one event. It is a whole drama that goes for thousands of years and unfolds before people's eyes. The Spirit applies that message but keeps Christ central all the way through the story, constantly keeping Christ central. To put it another way, the Spirit shows up in the Old Testament at major events to guide people to Christ, foreshadowing all that Christ will do, pointing to not only who Christ is, but the type of role and the type of salvation that Christ will provide. And when he does this, we're often told that he comes upon or rushes upon certain key individuals. And they're not just random samplings of people who are walking around in Israel and all of a sudden the Spirit rushes upon them. It's kind of a rare idea that you could just sort of be meandering or minding your own business and the Spirit rushes upon you. No. These were key figures who held offices that God designed. Particularly, we see this in the three offices that were anointed. Anointed offices. These are people that had oil poured on their heads. But it wasn't just simply because oil was nice to have on your head. You can't imagine that being comfortable or enjoyable. Apparently it was in in a dry climate. But the significance was to say that the Spirit is going to be on you in a special way. And so the offices of prophet and priest and king all had not just an anointing, but the Spirit come upon them. I mean, most obvious is the, is the prophet, right? The prophet is a man who is defined by the Spirit's activity so that the Spirit can speak words through the prophet And that the people hearing can know it's not just Elijah's words or Samuel's words, but they know that it's God's words with all the authority that comes from God because the Spirit was speaking through the prophet. In the same way, the priest was acting and chosen not because they were particularly holy. Oftentimes they were chosen as little children, brought from the family of Levi. It wasn't because they're particularly skilled at being a butcher in the, in the sacrificial system. No, it was because the Spirit was upon them. So that their work was not just merely their actions, but was tied to the redemptive work 
that God was doing. And we also see this in this third office. Kings. Kings would get this special anointing so that they could lead, not with their own wisdom, not with their own strategy and skill on how to be a good, powerful king in the ancient Near East, but because they could lead with the wisdom that comes from God. They could make decisions and leadership that shepherded their people in faith, not just in government. We see this in Samson. Judges 14, the spirit rushes upon Samson. We also saw this in our book, in 1 Samuel. Saul had the spirit rush upon him. When? When he was anointed. When Samuel anointed Saul, the spirit rushed upon him. And he started dancing and singing. So the people looked at him and said, whoa, what's going on with Saul? Is he too among the prophets? Was the line that they used. And then in chapter 11, the next chapter, the spirit rushes upon him again so that he can equip him to fight the just war that he was given on the Ammonites. Now the spirit comes upon this king in the case not to make him a Christian, but to empower him to play this very Christ-like role. It's a role that points to Jesus. And the Spirit allows these offices and this particular king to play this role that foreshadows Jesus to all of God's people. So when the Spirit comes upon him, you should know. The Spirit came upon Saul in chapter 10. It rushed upon him. That didn't mean that that's when he became a Christian. Quote, unquote, a believer, one who had faith. And then all of a sudden he loses it for two chapters or for a chapter, and then it rushes upon him again and he gets it back again? No, it's signifying that this is a special act of God, setting him apart. So the Spirit rushes upon David in verse 13. What's the point? God now is empowering David to be this amazing king over God's people. So that the people, when they saw spirit-filled David, they know that he's now the man. He's the one we should follow. He's the one that God's going to use to point us to Christ. And so if we've got this two ways that the Spirit acts in the Old Testament, if we have this in our mind, I think it can be very useful and helpful as we come to chapter 16. So we can understand what's going on here. We read a passage like, like verse 14, and it says that the Spirit has departed from Saul. And we have to ask the question, can that happen to me? Can the Spirit depart from my life? That's a very natural question. Now, if we mean by that, the first way that the Spirit acts giving me faith, applying Christ and and Christ's blessings to my life, then I think we have to say, no. We can never lose the Spirit in that way. The Spirit cannot depart from us. Now, how can I say that? Well, first, it's, it's clear that you did not get Christ by being a wonderful person. It's hard to break that to you. You never became a Christian 
based on your kindness. You never became a Christian based on your sinlessness. You never got it because you had some specific ability that was attractive to God. No. There are plenty of wonderful people who do nice things who do not have the Spirit of God. But there also isn't two classes of Christians. There's not the class of Christians who are normal, everyday Christians, and then the the class of Christians who have the Spirit. No, it says in Scripture that everyone who has Christ has the Spirit. Romans 8, if if, if Christ is in you, then the Spirit of life is yours. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? There's only one litmus test. There's one test. It's not your ability to do miraculous things. You don't know you have the Spirit because all of a sudden you get tingly inside or get a glow that keeps your spouse up at night. How do you know you have the Spirit? You know you have the Spirit if you confess Christ. If you acknowledge that He's your only hope for salvation. That's the reason you know you have the Spirit, because you believe that Jesus Christ has saved you. And you get that by grace alone. You cannot lose Christ, so you cannot lose the Spirit. Paul can look at the Corinthians, the most dysfunctional church that the world has ever known, maybe, who've got all sorts of sins. If you start digging into that book, those two letters, actually, you start seeing some stuff that would make uh, most people blush. doesn't matter where you're from. And then Paul can look at that church and say, and say to them, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we want to say, Paul, really? Look at them. Yes. It's not based on who they were. It's based on Christ. So in the one sense, no, you cannot lose the Holy Spirit. But what about this second sense? The sense of the Holy Spirit's role, not just in our experience, but in God's story. Can he leave you or even not come upon you in that sense? Well, yes. We can, maybe for a time, be disqualified from participating in God's mission. Now, the Bible can speak of this absence of the Spirit in two ways. One, in a positive way, he can say, you should be filled with the Spirit. In fact, it's not should, it's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. Knowing that you can, in some sense, not be filled. But he can also say it negatively, that we can grieve the Spirit, that you can experience a strained relationship. We keep that distinction in our mind. You can have the Spirit, a.k.a. you can be a Christian with Christ's blessings applied to you, but also not be filled with the Spirit. We can read this in Acts. In Acts 2, the Spirit is poured out on the the apostles and they are filled with the Spirit of God. 
And God uses them in powerful ways. And then again in Acts 4, it says that they're filled with the Spirit. And then again in Acts 13, they're filled with the Spirit. Why do they keep getting filled with the Spirit? Especially if we saw it just as one type of event. Did they lose the Spirit? For, what's that? Ten chapters? Nine chapters? And then get it back again? No. You have to understand that that God's Spirit came upon them in particular powerful times of gospel ministry. So being Spirit-filled shouldn't be seen as a bonus. It shouldn't be seen as optional. Being Spirit-filled is not the platinum membership in your church. That you have your sort of average Christians and then you've got the Spirit-filled ones. It actually is a description of what it means to be a healthy Christian. To be one who God is using. That's why Paul can say it's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. He says that in Ephesians 5, in this way, he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, don't let alcohol control you. Let the Spirit control you. What's controlling you? What is it that's dictating your life? You know, it's a very clear example how drunkenness can do that. Because you're giving yourself over for that control, and it's starting to dictate your behavior. You do the things, not that you necessarily want to do, but the things that the alcohol wants you to do. But what is it for you? It can be many things that we hand the steering wheel of our life over to. It could be your career ambition. It could be your anxiety. Anxiety for your kids. Anxiety for the life that you want. It could be the fears that are just driving you and keeping you up at night. See, those things... the control that you're giving them is toxic to your faith. They are the very thing that will make your faith shrivel up. You think life is going to be found there. That's why you keep giving yourself to these things to serve them. But Paul says, do not be filled with those things. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. When you're filled with those things, you will be wasting your life. You'll come to the end of your days and look back on it all and be filled with regret. It's not a question of your salvation. It's not a question of does Jesus love you. But that you've allowed other things to dominate you. It can be toxic to your faith. No, we must not think of being filled as a bonus or as for special Christians. When the Spirit controls your life, we find life. When the Spirit controls your life, we're able to be used for His service. He puts us into all sorts of situations because we have said yes to Him. And God will fill your life with purpose and value so that He can use you in ways you could never imagine. Think about that. He can use you. He can use even you 
not dependent on your resume, not dependent on the gifts that you bring or how wonderful you are, not dependent on your, your skill or your wealth or your beauty. And this is really the point of David's anointing story we have here. Samuel is given a message that says, go to Jesse's family and there you will anoint someone to be king. And Samuel does exactly what all of us would do when it's in line to select the next king, right? Who's going to make the best king? Let's find the attributes that we would want to be the next leader of our people. And so he gets Jesse to bring out all of Jesse's most likely candidates. And he starts with the top. He looks at Eliab. Strong. The oldest. Probably the most mature. Samuel even says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He's convinced. Let's seal the deal. Break out the oil. God says, nope. Okay. All right. Maybe he did something wrong. Let's go to the next guy. Abinadab, nope. Shama, nope. Son four, son five, son six. I mean, you can imagine like Samuel starting to roll his eyes. Okay, God, can you just tell me which one it is? Now, God could have clearly told him, go and get David from the, the family, but he's trying to hammer the point home to Samuel, and he's trying to hammer the point home to us. It's not the attributes of this guy. Don't look at the external. Stop trying to figure out that power comes the way the world sees power come. Stop trying to assume that that God's kingdom is going to advance the way the world's kingdoms advance. It's all about the receptivity to the Spirit. We seem to want that. We think about that in the church, too. Wow, God, give us the movers and the shakers. Give us the people who are extreme extroverts. I want them. I can use somebody who is positive, someone who can inspire. I want somebody who can can articulate this stuff really great and get me all pumped up and fired about my faith. God chose David. It's not because David's gifted or because he's tall or because he's good-looking. But it also isn't because David's poor and ugly. Verse 12 says that David has handsome and beautiful eyes. He's ruddy, which I think is just like a little bit red in his complexion. You see, there isn't a glorification of the lowly, and there's not a glorification of the rich. God won't choose you because you're poor. He's not going to choose you because you're successful. David, in that way, is nondescript. He's anointed because he's not, he's not noteworthy at all. God uses David because he can empower him with the Spirit. Verse 13, the Spirit rushes upon David. It makes it clear it's God's empowering Spirit that comes upon him. That's the whole point. And in that way, David is much like Jesus. People looked at Jesus and said, well, what's the big deal? We know his family. We know he's from, the, from around the corner. He's the carpenter's son. And they looked at his message, and they saw his suffering. And they dismissed him very quickly. Here is not a guy that can change the local government, let alone the world. Everyone looked at him as a leader, 
and said, this guy's getting persecuted. He's suffering. Everything I want in a leader is one who's not going to get defeated by the Romans and hung on a cross. But the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. I mean, the same can be said about the gospel. You think about the message of salvation, and it seems completely irrelevant. It's irrelevant to your life, to the biggest problems that you face this week, or to the problems this city faces, let alone start opening the newspaper and see all the problems in the world or a nation. We come up with lots of quick solutions to that. Political solutions, social activist solutions, all sorts of solutions. They're more relevant, right? Let's throw some money at these things. Let's throw some power at these things. The gospel... I mean, hey, look, it's good if you're religious, if that works for you, right? I mean, that's the line. I'm going to tell you, if you're skeptical about the gospel, if you're looking for more, then look again. This message that can seem so puny and so irrelevant has turned the world upside down. This message that came from the backwaters of the Roman Empire has taken 2,000 years and dominated the globe, every square inch of it, and not just globally, in your lives too. I can go here person after person who will say that my life is completely different. I am a new person because of this message. However much on the surface we say it looks irrelevant. If it still seems irrelevant to you, let's talk. Let's talk. I'd love to have that conversation. Because what you'll hear is not convincing words of logic or of ways in which this can exert power and get your way, but ways the Holy Spirit can come upon and use it in ways you can't imagine. This is what God says through His Spirit in verse 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. A spirit rushes upon David because he knows that he will be a king that will be receptive to the spirit, used by him. And the spirit departs from Saul. It's not just that we can miss the Spirit's filling. We can also grieve the Spirit. Paul also says that in Ephesians, in the context of a description of people who are giving in to bitterness and anger and slander. What grieves the Holy Spirit? Well, it's our sin. We've just come off a string of three chapters that have been describing Saul's sin how he's chosen his own way rather than God's way. And it has grieved God. And so God has removed his spirit. And we can be troubled by this. I actually think David can relate to this. In several years, David, as he's king, will experience the very same thing in the midst of his own sin when he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And he commits murder. And he, some of you know, expresses in Psalm 51 
the anguish of that. But that's all prefaced by the, by the fact that Nathan the prophet came and told him about that. For up until that time, David had been blind to his own sin, arrogant in his own power. But then he gets to that psalm. He gets to that challenge where his sin is exposed. He's confronted about his sin. And he writes, Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. You see, David's been at the highest seat. He knows what it's like to have God's presence in his life. To know God's pleasure and enjoyment. And to be used by God in powerful ways. I don't think there's been a figure before Christ who has ever been able to image and foreshadow Christ the way David has in so many ways. And yet here, he knows he's at the risk of losing all of that. Our sin can be completely forgiven by God. He's not going to hold it over our head, but it can grieve him. And he grieves not in a way to give the guilt trip. It's not as though God's saying, oh, if you knew how hard this was on me, your sin's just such a burden. It's not the point to make us feel guilty. He grieves because he loves you. And he sees that the sin in your life is harmful. And so it is a grace that you feel his godly, fatherly displeasure. It is a grace if you're suffering right now, related to sin. It is a grace to be able to feel that displeasure. To know that this isn't right. To know the emptiness that's there. And David went a long time without feeling it. Saul was dull to it the whole time, sadly. Are you feeling it? Saul's dull to it. But then in verse 14, we're told that God sends a harmful spirit to him. Okay, you can take the spirit away, but why do you need to send a harmful spirit? Or as in some translations say, an evil spirit. Now, before we are quick with our modern sensibilities and try to analyze this as a psychological problem or a mental disorder that Saul's dealing with, there's nothing in the scripture that points to that. In fact, the message makes clear that this harmful spirit is from God. Now, that might trouble us in many ways. How could God send a harmful spirit to somebody? Isn't God supposed to be good? Well, I want to state here that there could be good, in fact, I believe there is good in God's sending this harmful spirit. How? Let's think about this. First, we know that this harmful spirit is from God. And so what does that tell us? It tells us it's not random. It's not some demon out there able to do anything it it desires run amok in Saul's life. No, God is in control. But God is using this harmful spirit. Well, how? How is he using it? Well, for one, he's making it clear that Saul is no longer God's anointed. He's no longer a person to be looked at and seen as an image of Christ. He's no longer to be looked at by all of God's people and say, okay, this is God, this is the person God is acting. 
as the one who is going to redeem us and point us way forward to redemption. And that becomes very clear. Verse 15, all the people around know that Saul's got a problem, that somehow a harmful spirit has come upon him. And so the message is getting through. God has disqualified Saul from ministry. Saul's sin, the sin from the last few chapters, did not go unnoticed or unacknowledged so that the people could continue to follow this guy who has departed from God. It doesn't imply that he's lost his salvation, but it does say that he's no longer a spirit-filled, spirit leader that we can point to. But isn't it interesting that God chose this type of affliction for Saul? Because do you see how God used it? Very specifically, very intentionally, this particular affliction drove Saul to David. Let's look at how he did that. Saul, in this malady, somehow is diagnosed with the need for music. His servants recommend that he find a musician. And amazingly, they can only think of one. One qualified musician to heal Saul. They choose David. And then they describe David as this musician that he should hire. In verse 18, they they describe David this way. He's a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Now, you know, when we were hiring musicians... We chose Colin because he is a man of valor. And Emily because she's a woman of war. Trevor is a man of good speech, right? What do these characteristics have anything to do with musicians? Sorry, guys. They are the qualities of a king. It's even acknowledged here. The point here is that this harmful spirit has led Saul to the new king, the one who is a placeholder for Christ. God is leading Saul to Christ. He's trying to afflict him with this harmful spirit to break him, to bring him to a a sense of humility, to not only remove him from the burden of being the spiritual leader, but to point him to the one who is. Is Christ using affliction in your life to bring you to Christ? Are you finding your head bumping against the wall, dead ends again and again and again because you're not able to get your will? Maybe it's time to give up on your will. Maybe it's time to look for the one that God's put in front of your face. Well, how does, this, how does this apply to us today? How do we understand this story that is knee-deep in the Old Testament? Well, I think the first way to understand and apply it is to be able to understand the Spirit's role and how different it is from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, as we said, there's lots of similarities. On one level, the Spirit's work before Pentecost, when God poured out the Spirit, is not so radically different from our experience. In both cases, the Spirit comes upon all believers and applies Jesus to us. But 
on the other level, everything is different. Everything is different for us now. The Spirit's role has always been to point to Christ. But the big difference is where Christ is now. The Spirit's pointing us to Christ in the Old Testament meant pointing to these flimsy kings. However much they were supposed to stand in for Christ, they were not Christ. They were weak. Israel itself, an image of God's promises and blessing, kept wandering off the tracks at every moment. It was filled with shadow and promises. But now is the crystal clear reality We don't even have Jesus in his earthly ministry, who when you looked at him, all you saw was suffering and persecution. No, now, the Spirit applies to us Christ, the Christ who is reigning in heaven, the Christ who is seated, victorious, next to the Father. That's the Christ you have. We are at the climax of the story. We are at the fullness of time. Did you hear the way Peter put it in that Amazing New Testament passage saying that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, at work in the prophets beforehand, the Spirit of Christ told you this time, what this age would be like. And then he described it this way. It's a time that even the angels long to look into. That's where you are now. And so the Spirit's work in your life is applying this Christ to you. We don't have to wait to figure out what the the prize is. It's Jesus, and he's won. It is finished. And so the warning here is that we could be looking like Saul, disqualified from participating because we just don't get it, letting other things control us, wasting our lives. No, Scripture says be filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit isn't isn't by chanting some formula or falling into a trance. Being filled with the Spirit first means giving your life to Christ. The Spirit is always the Spirit of Christ. And so it's finding Christ at the basis of your life. Christ Christ as the basis of your self-worth and your value. You're letting Christ determine your future. Christ dictating your path. You're not trying to fit Christ into your life. How is he going to benefit my plans for the future? No, your plans for the future are going to fit into what he's doing. Or are you going to look at appearances like Saul, unable to see power that could possibly move outside of the way it moves in this real world? God's calling us to walk by faith, not by sight. Be filled with the Spirit means you are where Christ is. You know, it's ironic today that when we talk about being spiritual, it becomes so experiential, so individualistic. But where is Christ today? Where is the Spirit moving? Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out on people, not just individuals. When Ephesians, when Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit, it's in the context of describing the church. When we talk about the Holy Spirit's activity in 1 Corinthians, he says in the context of describing a body with many members. You can't ordinarily be spiritual and be by yourself. 
The work of the Spirit is always where Jesus is, where Jesus is active, and he's active in the body that he has created, the church. Secondly, and finally, being filled with the Spirit means you respond properly when sin is exposed in your life. When you feel that godly displeasure, we could either harden our hearts, as Saul did, doubling down on our sin, doubling down on our way is the right way, or we can give ourselves over to God. Will you be like David in Psalm 51, who acknowledges and repents because he's so fearful about being outside of the presence of God? Will you be like Saul, who never breaks, who never turns? If he just turned, he would realize the life that was there for him. Only in confession do we ever hear the sweet words of the gospel. Only when we come with our emptiness and our brokenness can we experience this table and the rich feast that it is. And that's how I want to invite us now. Let's take the next few moments and prepare to come to this table.